0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel 21, we'll study verses 1 through 9. 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 9. Again, if you're visiting with us, you may not know the culture of our church that we study and read, verse by verse, through entire books of the Bible, and so we've been in 1 Samuel, and have studied each verse, every chapter, all the way to here, in chapter 20, We're going to study verses 21, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verses 9, or 1 through 9. Boy, I'm going to get it out eventually. Uh, Let me also remind you where we are in the study uh, of this book. David has been pursued uh, by Saul, who is jealous and drunk with envy, who's tried to kill him on several occasions, and the last time we studied and Uh, Chapter 20, we had the account of this circumstance between David and Jonathan, this agreement that Jonathan would search out the heart of of Saul against David. And David said, Brother, if you find any sin, you tell me. You pierce me through. Why even take me to your father? And they had this unique way of communicating with one another where Jonathan would go and fire an arrow with a child to chase after the arrow. And he would shout to the child and communicate with David whether or not Saul was angry and intending to kill David or whether it was safe for David to return to the court of Saul. And you may recall that Jonathan did this. He was cursed by his father. He then returned to the field, fired the arrows, shouted to David, It is not safe. Leave and leave immediately. And these two men who loved one another as if they were the soul of one another, Embraced, kissed, and departed. And so we come here to chapter 21, and David is running for his life, literally, from King Saul, who, in a rage of madness and jealousy, uh, would see David, the challenger to his throne, put to death. So let's read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me 5 loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always I go on my as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today Will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there on that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth, behind the ephod. If you will take it, take that, for there is nothing but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Thus far, the word of the Lord our God. May he minister to us from the reading and the study of it. Let's pray. God of heaven, we pray that as we've heard your word, that Lord, we would come to know your eternal character more wonderfully. Lord, we ask for your help that as we study the ancient history of your people, We would see you as the powerful God of grace, even then, and that we would be confirmed that you remain the same God, a God of mercy and love to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we do with rules? Or what is the point of God's law? These are two questions that hang over this passage of Scripture. And that question is not just derived from a minister reading on to it or commentators putting things together, but rather from the text of Scripture itself. Jesus cites this to answer specifically the question of the role of the law in the life of the person, the child of God. And here we are in this strange occasion. Again, we have David. He's running for his life. And this is the historical account of a very, very desperate David. He's left in such haste that he's gone with no food, he's gone with no weapons, and he is running north of the city of Jerusalem. And as we read just a moment ago, you have the priest Ahimelech, and he looks on David, and he asks him a unique question, why are you all alone? And we studied this, and it would seem almost strange, right? Because, what does Ahimelech ask David? He said, have the young men kept themselves pure, plural. David's not completely alone. He simply has a few choice servants that are with him. And so there's this unique situation, a desperate David, no food, no weapons, being pursued for his life. And we have to ask the question, how it is that a priest gave to him and to these men what was only permitted by the law of God to be eaten by priests. And so what are we to do with the rules of God? What are we to do with the law of God? And how are we to think on this priest and David in light of the passage of Scripture that we have? And so I want to look at three different things within this passage. Uh, The first in verses 1 and 2, David lying. Or David lies. Then in verses 3 through 6, David eats. David eats. And then in verses 7 through 9, David arms. Or he takes on weapons. He arms. So in verses 1 and 2, again, we come into the scripture and it's very abrupt. At the close of chapter 20, Uh, there is this reaffirmation of the covenant of love before the Lord between Jonathan and David, the last verse saying this, The Lord shall be between me and you, David and Jonathan, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he, that is David, rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And immediately... Chapter 21, verse 1, David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And if you're listening along, and as we read, you think, well, I know the name there. It's a strange city name, Nob. Uh, but, I, I, you know, it should ring bells to you. And you may be wondering and going through the mind and saying, well, what's the significant thing here? And some of you may be already saying, oh, I know the answer. This is the hometown of King Saul. This is an important city in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, This is, as you might call it, Saul's city, the town of the king. This is no random place. This is immediately north of the city of Jerusalem and slightly east, I believe if my geography is correct. And this is where David is stopping. And, And here's the picture here, if you will, I believe. You have David and he's running. And he's running from the king in Jerusalem. And he's going north and he's going very fast, and he's running as hard as he can, just a few men with him, not the great host of the military force that was assigned to him as an officer in the army of Israel, but just a few men, and they come there to Nob. You may ask the question, why do they stop? Is it because they're exhausted? Possibly. If they're normal people, they're exhausted. But David's not just any normal guy. He's extraordinary. He is a warrior amongst warriors. He's Uh, really the fittest soldier that's recorded in ancient history, and certainly so in the Bible. Uh, He may not be stronger than Samson, but nonetheless, he's taken down so many more, uh, and also many more than King Saul. So does he stop because he's tired? Well, I would submit to you that I think that there's more here. And the reason why I think that there's more here is that the scripture, in chapter 22, we'll see more of this, tells us that David went to Nob to inquire of the Lord. What does that mean? A lot of commentators and Bible scholars and readers have asked that question and they've answered it in a few different ways. Uh, Some have said, well, that means to pray. It means to ask of the Lord what you should do to seek the Lord's guidance. Others say, well, it seems like a pastoral visit. Like if you were to call me and say, Nick, I've got this job to do or I've got this situation in my life, how would you advise? And, you know, that happens. It's a regular thing. It's a part of the life of God's people. And I'll say at least this. I think it's got to be both. I think he's looking for the intercessory work of this priest. He's looking for comfort from Ahimelech. Ahimelech will tell you in chapter 22, which we'll study in coming weeks, uh, he's going to tell you that this isn't the first time David's come to me. How often has David come to me to inquire of the Lord? So these men know one another. Now it seems very likely that as David has gone out to battle, leading his great host of an army, that he's passed right through Nob, and he's stopped there at the tabernacle, and he's worshipped the Lord with Ahimelech, and so it makes even more sense. Ahimelech looking out, David's almost alone, just a few men, no weapons, no food, no horses, nothing, and Ahimelech says... Why in the world are you alone? It may even explain to us a little bit of Ahimelech's, well, fear. You know, whenever we see this, we're told uh, that uh, as he sees David, that David is trembling. uh, Or when he comes to meet David, that he's trembling. uh, And he says to David, you know, this question, you know, why are you all alone? And then he may be concerned, well, has David lost the battle? And this is the only small group of survivors that now have made it for help, for refuge. That's one possibility. The other possibility is this is Saul's city. This is his town and the territory of his tribe. It could be, we don't know, that Ahimelech actually knows the political situation of the moment. Maybe he does know that David's running from Saul. We're not told. It's just not disclosed in the scripture. But nonetheless, you have David and he's running and he's meeting Ahimelech. And I want to say this because we really do have to ask the question, why is David here? Why didn't he go to Beersheba? Why didn't he go to Dan? Why didn't he go elsewhere, do different things or, you know, hide out, grow a long beard, long hair and not say anything for a little while. If he's really hiding, I just want to say that David has a heart To worship the Lord. Because what you're going to see about David is that in this flight, he's not just going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to leave all of the territory of the people of Israel. He's going to get beyond the power of King Saul. And where does he go? He goes to the Philistines. The enemies of the people of God. And he raves like a madman. And he hides in a cave. And he does a number of different things. And so, I do think that this is reflective of David's heart. That if he's leaving Jonathan if he's leaving his city, if he's leaving the promised seat of his kingdom, that likewise he's leaving the place of the worship of God. And for him, it is a significant thing that burdens his heart. And so as he's leaving, once again, he's going to go once again to the place where he can come before the face of the Lord in the worship of God. So here comes the question again. Why are you alone? And we get to the real problem in these two verses. David's response, verse 2. He says, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter which I send you and with which I have charged you. Then David adds, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. And if you say, well, that seems really vague, it is. But if you've also understood, this is a lie. It's an outright lie. Saul hasn't sent him for anything. Jonathan hasn't sent him for anything. This is completely an untruth. We have to deal with that. Because David's an important person in the Bible. He is the shadow of Jesus in the Old Testament. He is the forerunner of the kingdom of Christ. Okay? And here he is with lies on his tongue. He's breaking the law of God. He's bearing false witness. Okay? So what do we have to do with this? How do we understand this? What's at the root of David's heart when he does this? Is he just a liar? A deceiver? Well, I want to suggest some things to you. And then I want to back away from it and give you an answer about how we have to deal with this. We can ask the question and answer, why does David do this? We could say one of two things generally. We could say, David is afraid of Saul. And as he runs to the city of Nob and comes to Ahimelech to do this act of worship, he does not want anybody to know that he's running from Saul, including Ahimelech. He's undercover. He's terrified. And so he doesn't tell him because he doesn't want to tell anybody. He's afraid, and fear is driving him. One answer. It's uncharacteristic for David to act like this. He's not a man known for fear. He's a man that faces giants and cuts their heads off. He's not a man known for fear. He stands before an angry Saul and dodges spears. Doesn't seem like that's where David is. There is another possible motivation for his outright lie. I don't want to say things like untruth. I want you to hear it straight what this is. This is deception, okay? And that is possibly that David is seeking to protect Ahimelech from any accountability for David's being uh, a refugee from Saul's pretended hand of justice. He doesn't want Saul to come and to find Ahimelech and to say, Hey, here you are. Who are you in my city? To then house my enemy. To help him. What are you doing? And we're going to see that exact thing happen very soon as we continue to study uh, this book of Scripture. And it will not play well. But is David's heart really to save Ahimelech from an issue? Probably. Likely. It's one or it's the other. There aren't too many other options. And in any situation, it still does not give him the right to deceive, to bear false witness. And so, what do we do with the rules of God, with the law that he has set down for the good of his people? This is a shortfall. In fact, this is not only a shortfall, this is an outright sin. Well, the first thing I want to tell you is this. The Bible does not conceal his sin. It paints it right on the page. Black and white in clarity. It doesn't conceal anything about it. It doesn't apply any sort of motive. It doesn't explain it away at all. It just puts it out to you. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to simply know is that there is not a circumstance where our lies have a right to be concealed. Period. With good intentions, with bad intentions for the protection of others. And you can ask lots of political questions about the concealing of people for their protection and so on and so forth. That is a deeper question, but I want to talk about very specifically the law of God and the account here and the reason why this is given uh, very uh, forthrightly. David does not have a good reason to then conceal his intention. He does not have a good reason to lie. David could say less. David could say nothing. David could say, well, these are the men who could come with me. But instead, he actively deceives. And I also want to tell you that if it is, which I think is quite likely, that he wants to save this man from an issue or if he even wants to conceal his activity from Saul, his lie ultimately fails. This is what you're going to see. Because later in the passage of Scripture, what do we do? We, we read this account, I believe it's in verse 7, that one of the certain servants of Saul was detained there at the tabernacle before the Lord, a man named Doeg the Edomite. So a guy that had come from Edom, not of the people of Israel, but had made a profession a faith in the God of Israel. He was there, an agent of Saul, who saw right through it. And who then went and reported it to Saul, we presume. And Saul comes, and without a question, almost without any sort of trial, sentences this priest of the Lord to death. David's lie does not get well served. David could have chosen a different path entirely. So David's lie. We should be careful not to say more than Scripture, apply presumptions to Scripture, but simply observe how the Scriptures handle the acts of men in light of the law of God. And So we go on and we find in verses 3 through 6 kind of the central issue uh, to the passage of Scripture. Uh, Another reason why David goes uh, to Nob and, and to this priest is very evident here. Again, it's not a guess that he wanted to go and inquire of the Lord. That's testified to uh, from Ahimelech. But here, secondly, David eats. He's hungry. Uh, He's gone. He has no one with him or very few with him. He then spins a web of a lie. And immediately in verse 3, he gives his first request to the priest. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And let me just simply say that as a dad and as I read this, this feels like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in our house. Dad, what do we have? I'm so hungry. I want a snack. I want something. What do we have? What do we have? That's almost the sort of uh, direction that David brings. But it makes so much sense that as David is run, he's running for his life, He hasn't eaten. We don't know what amount of time has passed. Some time has at least, and, well, he's starving, and so are these men. There are questions commentators have put to this. Why didn't he stop at anybody else's home? doesn't say that he didn't. Why didn't he stop at a restaurant? It's the ancient world, okay? It's not a place with so many restaurants and fast food. Why does David do this sort of thing? Well, the simplest thing is to simply say he was hungry. He ran out of so much fear of his life and really to continue to fulfill the calling of God on his life that there he is. He stands before the priest, at least an advocate. I want you to take note of something, though. David doesn't say, Give us the bread of presence. He doesn't say, give us the holy food. I have a right to it. Don't you know I'm the coming king? Are you going to tell me no? Because whenever this old guy's done, I promise, I will make your life very hard. Not at all. He simply has this basic request. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And I do think that the response of the priest, it speaks to the circumstance of the priest and really of Maybe even the the whole tribe of the Levites. His answer to David is this. I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. I don't really have anything, David. I'm a poor priest. I don't have fields. I don't have wine presses. I don't have cattle. I don't have holdings. I don't really have anything. I only have what the Lord has appointed to me by the sacrificial giving of God's people. That's it, David. I don't have common bread. That's not what God gave to me. Now, in other seasons, he may have excess. He may have things that have been derived from the tithe to give David, but he doesn't have it. There he is. There's not even a temple. The people of Israel are small. So many of the tribes have almost died out even at this time. He doesn't have very much. He's a man that is relying on what the Lord has provided specifically for the well-keeping of the priest. He says, I don't have common bread. However... There is holy bread. And you ask the question, well, what are we talking about? What's this holy bread? Is this the kind of stuff we have at the Lord's Supper? Is the bread of presence in the temple the same thing as the loaf that's passed among this church? Well, I want to say that there is not an absolute disconnect, but no, they're not, they're not the same thing. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper and its bread has an entirely different symbology and meaning and gift and all of that than this. But I direct your attention to Exodus 25, 30. And you have this description of a table that's to be fashioned out of pure gold, to be set in the temple, a table uh, that is specifically engineered and ordained by God to hold the bread of presence. And you say, well, what are we talking about? That doesn't mean anything, the bread of presence. How do I understand it? Well, more is told to you in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you a little bit of a and understanding. This bread is a sacrifice of God's people, first aspect, okay? It is a gift that the people of God, the tribes of Israel, give sacrificially, and there's very specific directions. How much flour by weight is to be placed into each loaf. Moreover, we're told exactly how many loaves are to be placed on this table. There are to be 12. We're even told exactly how they're to be situated, It's not that they're to be built into a a pyramid or a heart shape or anything like that. No, they're to be stacked six and six, each of them 12 in two stacks. Okay. Not only that, but they're to be topped with frankincense. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm just going to make the assumption that they're going to place frankincense on top of it. And so that's how it's told to be. So it's a sacrifice to the Lord. But there's symbology there. And you hear the, you know, the number 12. And you're probably getting a sense that it's symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Each loaf representing one. And their relationship to God. Their covenant with the Lord. That he is their God and they are his people. And they will worship him. It is, in essence, each tribe saying, here we are before you always in your presence. Okay? That's the symbology. Because you recall that a tabernacle or a temple, it's not like a church. Your children don't go and run up to the pulpit like Benjamin did after the service this morning. No, they're, they're in an entirely different place. Only priests go into the holy place where this is located. And certainly, only the high priest goes into the holy of holies. This is a place of the presence of God. It is significantly dangerous for your average person. Priests purify themselves. They're ordained for the task. They're constantly prepared. And they even have a schedule and a cycle of who can do what and when. This is an entirely special thing. And these loaves symbolize the people of God in their families, always under the watchful care and presence of God himself. And we're told also there in Leviticus 24 that they're always kept in the temple. That as one is taken away, then hot ones are there replaced. We even have that here in the passage of Scripture. Um, There, I think it's... uh, Yeah, it's there in uh, verse 6. Immediately when one's taken, another is replaced. Still hot. It's a really unique um, detail. But if you were to look at Leviticus 24 five through nine, you understand that these aren't just ceremonially used things. They're not just bread that's put out and then you know, dumped into the trash. No, this is specifically called a holy portion for Aaron. Okay? A holy portion for Aaron. You may recall that Aaron and his tribe, the Levites, they don't have an inheritance. They don't have fields. They have holy work and holy work alone. They are sustained by God and his gifts derived from his people. That's it. And this bread is a holy portion. It's a pay for them and it's their nourishment. Okay? So they go and they eat it and on the Sabbath it's always fully refreshed. That's what the scripture of Leviticus tells us. Completely replaced with a new portion. No idea what it would taste like No idea why you would eat bread with frankincense, but this is the circumstance. And why do I outline that? Well, it is because, yes, it is for holy use. It does have ceremonial place in the law of God, but it is also extended as a mercy to these people so that they can eat food and live. Both of these things held in tension the ceremony of God and His law and His mercy to His servants. Both of those things at the same time in the same loaf, they're present. But we're also told only priests are to eat this. What about the law of God? What about the rules? How is it that I can read in verse 4 that there it is? It's just given freely. Now, how is it that David doesn't request the holy bread, but here Ahimelech, the priest who does not get rebuked for it, says, I don't have common bread, I only have holy bread. And if the young men have kept themselves from women, I'll give it to them. Well, friends, I just want to simply say this. It is because he understands precisely this, that the law of God is not intended to enslave men, but to be a blessing to God's people. Okay? It's firstly, obviously, regularly intended to bless the Levites, the priests. It's their dinner. It's their common meal in the regular life that they live. as holy men, sanctified to the service of the God of heaven. And you might say, I don't know, Pastor. Holy, merciful use, where are you getting this? Well, it's because I'm only going to preach a sermon as I look over the shoulder of Onto the notes of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew this passage of Scripture, Mark 2, 23 through 28, and in all of the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this event. Jesus is having a debate about the Sabbath. And who's he debating with? Well, his favorite debate partners, the Pharisees. And they are complaining about what? They're complaining about the disciples of Jesus passing through fields and then taking or gleaning heads of grain as they pass through, which is lawful. It's lawful to do this, but their complaint is that it's on the Sabbath. How can you do this? How can you eat on the Sabbath? Don't you know you're held to account according to the letter of the law? What's Jesus' answer? Do you not know that even David ate of this special bread? And You say, hang on a second. He doesn't say it was on the Sabbath. These things don't go one to one, do they? But Jesus sees that they do. They completely cohere one with the other. Well, it's because Jesus has then to tell him this. Man is not, man, man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath made for man. It's this principle Man is not made for the law, but the law is made for man, that God intends for the law to be a blessing for us, to pour out mercy upon us, to keep us from sinning, to help us to see his holiness and to learn to live a life in obedience to him. And in this circumstance, the mercy of God in every way is upheld in the extending of food that a man may not suffer and starve, specifically a significant man, In the person of David, the father, grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law of God to serve the people of God. The law of God likewise ceremonial, but the principle of mercy always at play. That's why David doesn't look at him and say, how can you do this? I can't have this. That's also why the priest doesn't say, sorry, David. I know you're starving, and I've got this stack of 12 loaves. You can't touch a single piece. Rather, he freely gives. He rightly understands the law of God. And how much more for us as Christians to understand this? God loves us and has given us laws to bless us, not to enslave us, to be things through which we behold his glory, his mercy. How much more should we be a people that understand that yes, God's law that Jesus did not come to abolish but to uphold is for us to keep us from sinning, to help us see his holiness and to learn to live after him. That we can delight in things like the Sabbath. That we're supposed to delight in knowing him and him alone as the Lord our God. No other God before us. We can delight in him, a God who is so great that he cannot be contained in an image. That we can delight in a God whose name is so holy, who is so wonderful, so majestic, that it is inappropriate that our God be brought down to the level of cursing and his name being made nothing. This is so much more a blessing for me and for you as Christians. And we ought to look on David and also look onto the application of Jesus and say, friends, how much ought we to learn? Not to be a people who put away the law of the Lord, but see the law in the fullness of its use to show us all of his glory. And likewise, its use as a mercy to us as his people. Go on in verses 7 through 9, and we see David arming himself. He arms himself with a weapon. And we have the second request of David. I won't go back to uh, verse 7. That's the passage about uh, Doug, the Edomite, we've already talked about you know, his role here. Uh, but rather, 8 and 9, if I may, this request. David says to Himelech after he's eaten the food, uh, then, you have, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And so David even goes again uh, to his um, deception of the priest. The priest says to David, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And we come to that, it's an interesting passage of scripture, because the last time we saw the sword of Goliath, where was it? Think hard. You may say, well, wasn't it given over to Saul? There's not a record of it. I think we can make an assumption that it likely was. It was the head of Goliath that was given over to Saul and that David then took to the city of Jerusalem. And you might say, well, wasn't it put in David's tent, if you're recalling, back so many chapters ago? Actually, the text of Scripture says it's his armor that could include his sword, but we know specifically that it's the armor of Goliath. So the last place we see the sword of Goliath is where? Well, it's in the hands of David, covered in blood, after he has dispatched Goliath completely. And so how is it then here? How is it getting into the tabernacle in in Nob in the territory of Benjamin? And that's a huge question. It's a great mystery. Uh, We can have lots of guesses. I'll offer a guess. I won't tell you it's biblical or it's historical, but I'll say this. It could be that it was delivered over to Saul, and then here as the tabernacle is there amongst the people of Benjamin, that Saul places it there as an item of honor and of the Lord's deliverance. Could be. We don't know that. We do know it was there, though. That's the important thing. Don't get caught up in the the historical questions and the hysterics of chasing all different sorts of theories. Rather, just simply realize That in God's providence, this symbol that came to be a symbol of the deliverance of God, where a boy took down a great warrior, a giant of the Philistines, was commemorated in this item being placed, not just anywhere, but wrapped and located there with the ephod. Significant items. That's what the priest says. There it is. I just got this one sword. You probably remember it. It's the one that you took from Goliath as you killed him. If you want it, you could take it. Seems like no one else ought to have it, but you, you could take it, David. And what is David's response? There is none like that. Give it to me. It's simple. Now David has a sword he has a weapon a weapon not only that he knows but one that before he could scarcely lift probably something like a very heavy axe as he dispatched Goliath but now in the hand of a real warrior and a grown man a terrible weapon before the Lord of glory. And so what are we going at here? Why is this included? Well it's it's a practicality. David's running for his life he needs some protection. But there's something you need to see and not look away from, and that is the provision of God. God delivered Israel and also its champion David from the hand of Goliath. God delivered David again and again from the hand of a deranged Saul. God has driven David out, as we saw in the testimony of Jonathan, that if David is to leave, it is the Lord's doing. And there is David hungry and God has fed him and here is David without any protection and God protects him. God provides for him. God is always providing for his children just like we read this morning. God turns all things to good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. How else could we think of David but a man who loves God? And is so evidently called and anointed and ordained according to the purpose of God as the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. God provides for his people. And you and I ought to be confronted with that again and again and again and again. He provides for us in spiritual ways and ways that we would say are physical or real methods he puts things on our tables to eat. He places clothes on our backs. He gives us the tools that we need. He doesn't only provide spiritual protection, but he raises up champions to defend us. And likewise, he gives us the capacity to defend ourselves should the occasion come. We have a great God of providence who even though men intend things for evil, the Lord is working it for good and for his own purposes. Praise be to God, that the God of David is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our God, the Lord and the Redeemer of the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, for their truths. Lord, we thank you that your word stands forever. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would help these things come to rest on our minds and hearts, that, Lord, we would delight in your unchanging everlasting love for your people. Lord, help us this evening to rest in you. Father, to take just a few more moments to praise you and a few moments in sweet fellowship. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.